Father, man, that song, I love that song. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Lord, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring us to a saving knowledge of Christ. God, we confess, we take that gift so lightly so often. So Father, I pray that today in in your word, you would warm our hearts with the truth of who we are and whose we are, Lord, that you would take this truth from um, the clouds of theology to the shoe leather of everyday life. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, um, that that your saints would be edified, and that the lost people here would be brought to life. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So it probably will be key more than usual for you to have one of these outlines because there's, there's a lot of information on these outlines that will guide us through 1 Corinthians 12. Let me begin here. Pride is an insatiably voracious, and I would add, creative monster. Pride can take almost anything and make it a point and reason and cause for sinful boasting. That's what was going down in spades at the church at Corinth. For instance, in chapter 1, we saw that pride was causing them to factionalize behind their favorites. I'm with Team Peter. He's raw. He's real. I'm with Team Paul. He's such a precise exegete. I'm with Team Apollos. He's just funny. And probably the most insufferable lot of all were the Team Jesus people. We don't need a human leader. We just have Jesus. And that was causing factionalism and division. In chapter 1 and 2, we see that pride was causing them to shave off the hard edges of the gospel to make it more popular popular and palatable with the masses. Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're good with what you're saying, the people in Corinth would say, as they adulterated the gospel out of pride of wanting to be liked by the world. Then you run up to chapter, uh, was it chapter 5? Pride was causing them not only to tolerate unrepentant sexual immorality in the ranks, but actually to boast in it. We're an open church. We're an affirming church. That's kind of what was going down there. Then you get to chapters 8 and 10. This was what pride was causing them to do with, with respect to meat sacrificed idols. Pride was causing some of them to say, we know an idol's nothing, so yeah, we're free. We eat any meat, including meat that was sacrificed to idols. We know idols are nothing. And on the other hand, pride was causing others to say, we are pure. We don't, we're holier than the rest. If we know that that meat ever came into contact with an idol, we're not going to eat it. Pride was causing that to erupt. You get to chapter 11, just a few weeks ago, Pride was causing them to thumb their noses at distinction in gender and roles in marriage. And then our last look at 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that pride was causing the church to mirror the socioeconomic stratification in the culture, even at the heart of the church, the Lord's Supper or communion. But perhaps chapter 12 through 14 take the cake when it comes to pride's ability to take even a good thing and turn it into a cause of sinful boasting. Here's what they were doing. They were boasting in their spiritual gifts, specifically the gifts of tongues. That was the badge of spirituality at the church at Corinth. It marked who was in and who was out. And if you wanted to get in, you best speak in tongues. Then you would be spiritual. That was the deal at Corinth. Now, typically, people come to these three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and they use it according to their uh, viewpoint to argue for or against the debate whether tongues are for today. And when people go to the text with that as the primary purpose, I think they're missing the point. 
I would say as a relevant aside, that out of all the books Paul wrote, do you know how many books he actually mentioned tongues in? How many? One. Here. Unless I'm wrong. Do you know how many books of the New Testament mention tongues? Two. This one, of course, and the book of Acts. So maybe, maybe we're making a bigger deal about it than we should. Now, now to be candid, I do believe tongues are a gift for some for today. But the point of these three chapters is not to come to it and argue for or against tongues for today. Here's the point. The point of these these chapters are how tongues are to operate if, when, and where they present themselves in public worship. But let's not miss the bigger idea. Here's the bigger idea that's going to, I think, hold these sermons together, these five sermons, is this. True spirituality, you should have it on your outline, is using your gifts out of love to build up the church. Can you guys say that with me? Did I say it the way I wrote it there? True spirituality is what? Your gifts out of love to build up the church. Now, as I said in the pre-service prayer meeting, I fear this part's going to be a little bit like a lecture, but I, before we dive in, I want to give you the big picture of how these three chapters work together. So can I do that? And then, and then we'll dive into this message. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, gives us this foundation that God gives gifts. You say that's rudimentary enough? Yes, but we must start there because it's foundational. Then chapter 12, verses 12 to the end of the chapter gives us this illustration that Pastor Cleet touched on last week. The illustration is this, the body metaphor, right? And the big idea there is going to see, we're going to see is that God gives us all gifts for the good of the common good or for the benefit of us all or for the good of the church. God gives us gifts for other people. It's not about us, it's about others. Then we're going to get to chapter 13, and we're going to see this motivation. Chapter 13, you typically associate with weddings when it talks about love. That's not really the context. Great application, to be sure, but it's, it's sandwiched between two chapters, putting spiritual gifts on blast. And the motivation for using our gifts, then, must always be out of love. And if you're not using your gifts out of love, then you are turning that gift for ill. You're, you're but harsh-sounding brass. Then you get to the fourth section of, this, of these three chapters, first part of 1 Corinthians 14, and what we're going to see is this function. The reason we get gifts is to build one another up. It's edification is the word there. And then finally, end of chapter 14, he gives us this closing instruction in these three chapters on spiritual gifting where he basically is making the point These gifts that God gives must be used according to the plan of the giver. All things would be done decently and in good order. So what we have is the foundation, the illustration, the motivation, the function, and finally, final instructions. Okay, end of class time. Let's preach, okay? So we're going to start with this. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, and we're going to see God gives gifts. Two main points here under God gives gifts. Number one. The greatest gift of all is this, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. The greatest gift of all is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's dive in at verse 1. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And by the way, that expression, maybe you have a footnote that denotes this. It could mean spiritual people. We're not quite sure which way to take it. Either way, I think The point is the same. Now, concerning spiritual gifts or spiritual people, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Paul had received a report that there was not only people acting uninformed, but as that word can be translated, often it is in many translations, acting ignorantly about gifts. Either they thought they were spiritual people because they had special gifts, or they just thought the gifts made them extra special. They were acting as those gifts as if those gifts had made them somebody special, like 
that they had received gifts, if you will, because God, God say, had in a church of 100, he had 27 units of gift A. And he's like looking down, who can I give these gifts to? I'll give it to the best 27 people. Boom, you get a gift. Boom, you get this gift. Boom, you get this gift. In other words, they were acting like those gifts were given on the basis of merit, that they somehow earned them, that, and that made them better than others. But the word spiritual gift or gift that appears in verse 4 and 9 and all through these three chapters, I think 15 or 16 times, every usage in the New Testament except one other one in another book, is the word charismata. You ever heard that expression? Charismatic. Now, by the way, all gifts are charismatic because charismata simply means grace gift. Grace gift. Now, already, when you hear the word gift, that should tell you, well, a gift is a gift, right? Like, you don't get a gift because you earned it or you deserved it. You gave a gift out of somebody's, you were given a gift out of somebody's kindness, right? But when you put grace on the front of that, it really emphasizes that spiritual gifts are not because you earned or deserved them. And for God saw you would be a great steward of that gift, but simply out of grace. Sadly, in their pride, in their ignorance, they were taking these gifts and just peacocking around like they were somebody special, specifically the gift of tongues. And no doubt people do that with other gifts, right? And I can't help. As I was going through that earlier last week, I couldn't help but what Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. This is what he says. Um, if you, and I worked on memorizing this verse in a lot, here it is. What did you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, that is, as a gift, why do you act as if you didn't receive it? In other words, why are you taking your gifts and acting like you have them because you're somebody super-duper extra special and God said, well, I guess I can trust you with this gift. No, 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 no. What do you have that you did not receive? It was all a gift. Now, remember again, tongues was the badge of spirituality at the church at Corinth. You all with me? It was the badge of spirituality. If you want to be spiritual, you better speak in tongues. In their minds, the test of spirituality was ecstatic utterances, ecstatic speech, or just speaking in another language. So what Paul's going to do in verse 2, it's masterful. Paul is going to call their minds to the not-so-distant past when they were nothing but lost pagans worshiping idols. Look what he says in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led, he wrote. And it was well known that in these pagan temples where they worshiped these false gods and goddesses, many dark and unspeakable and unseeming things happened as part of the worship. And what was also a frequent occurrence to some degree was people speaking in tongues, ecstatic utterances, ecstatic speech, unintelligible speech, perhaps another language. That happened in pagan temples, and that happens in cults and religions to this day. Did you know that? Christians aren't the only ones that speak in tongues. Time does not allow me to, to rehearse all the cults and religions that, that speak in tongues. But here's four. Do you know that Mormons practice glossolalia? Did you know that? Did you notice that? Did you know that certain Native American tribes do? Did you know that? Did you know that the Brahmin of Greenland speak in tongues? Did you know that the cores of Ethiopia speak in tongues? Now, listen, my point is not to discount tongues altogether or say there's no legitimate tongues because I believe there is. My point is simply this. Tongues can be counterfeited. Satan is a master counterfeiter, is he not? In 2 Corinthians 12, I think it is, it says Satan himself can masquerade as an angel of light. We're reminded that demonic forces are real. I remember I had just become a Christian my last few months in the Marine Corps. 
I get out, Susan and I are looking for our first house. And we met this realtor. She was a sweet lady. Uh, we had mentioned that we were Christians. Uh, she said she was a Christian. We were going to be there over the weekend looking at houses. Could she recommend a church? She said, oh, absolutely. You need to come to my church. It's an awesome church. And I asked her a few questions with what little I knew about the faith. I said, like, do they teach the Bible and stuff like that? She said, oh, yeah, you'll love it. So we get there, and there is a band up there, and they are just playing stanza after stanza after stanza, just trying to work people up into a froth and frenzy. It was just like a, a cheesy mosh pit kind of thing. We should have dove in the middle. It was just, it was too much, really. Then the pastor came up and said, okay, now we're going to pray. We're like, Whew. Everybody starts praying at once. Now, I'm, I'm used to that. I kind of like that Romanian style, Korean style. But everybody was praying at once in tongues. Now, we'll get to whether that's biblical when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But that was too much. I'm like, they probably have my, at that time, Kevin was just a few months old. I think this kid's probably on a stretch rack in the nursery. What is going on here? You know, because then a lady up front, and of course, they sat us up front very conveniently. Uh, a lady up front starts screaming. And this is this is over a quarter of a century ago. And I can I can feel it and see it like it was yesterday. I've been in places where people wanted to kill me. And I'm not trying to argue out of experience, but there was something dark and there was something demonic going on there. We found out later that didn't other things didn't believe in the Trinity or saved by baptism and all this and that. But, man, we, we got Kevin out of the nursery as fast as possible and got out of there. But that, that feeling chased me all the way to the hotel. I couldn't shake it. And what kind of funny, kind of sad, I told my mom just recently I'd just become a Christian. And she's like, what do you mean? You've always been a Christian. I'm like, no, you have to trust Christ. And then when we went to the church. She said, oh, I see. That's what you've gotten into. I'm like, no, Mom, that, that's not it. That's not us. Now, during ancient pagan worship, sometimes, as a part of their static utterances, they would cry, anathema Jesus. You know what that means? Jesus is accursed. I do remember hearing this story about an a, a overseas missionary. He came home. He was going to his supporting churches, sharing what God was doing. And somebody in the congregation uh, stood up and spoke in tongues. The pastor rightly asked if there was an interpreter. Again, we'll get to that verse Corinthians 14. Uh, there wasn't. He finally stood up and, and he interpreted. And he said, that person just spoke in the language of the people I'm, I'm, I'm serving overseas. And they cursed God. Now look what it says, latter part, or first part of verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says what? Jesus is accursed. Paul is dialing in on that. And again, my point is not, please hear me, that tongues are not real. Here's my point. It's like Paul is saying, hmm, do you really want to use tongues? As a badge or test of spirituality when you full well know from your past pagans can speak in tongues? And when they do, they sure as fire are not animated by the Holy Spirit, but by fallen spirits. Here, here's a great caution right here. Great caution. Never measure spirituality by spiritual gifts. Judas Iscariot, not to mention the fact that he actually deceived people into thinking he was a man of integrity for a time, right? He would have had the gift of administration, right? He was good with the numbers. He was good with the purse. He was, and he was a son of perdition. I have a daughter that's taken a class on New Testament, and one of the textbooks given is by a guy named, is written by Bart Ehrman. That guy is a brilliant New Testament scholar. Went to Moody, went to Wheaton, and has become a rank and slyly militant atheist seeking his own converts. Doesn't believe a word of it. Never equate spiritual giftedness to true spirituality. 
that person might even be lost, as in the case of the two examples I just gave you. So what is the test of spirituality? That's, anybody want to know? According to this text, well, there's a, we could open up the text and say, well, one test would be the fruit of the Spirit over the gifts of the Spirit, right? But even then, there's many moral people in the world, right, by God's common grace, um, which isn't quite fruit of the Spirit, but that's a whole other thing. It, we could say the big idea of these three chapters, true spirituality consists in using your gifts out of love to build up the body. But, but here at the top of the list, Paul gives us the answer of what true spirituality is. He says, no one can say what? Jesus is Lord. Except how? In the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? True spirituality is marked by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. True spirituality is marked by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. What he's done is he's cut him down to size, and now he's trying to build up a bib. Uh, a Bible-based unity. Listen, if you've confessed Jesus, it's because the Spirit enabled you to do that. He's the one who's brought you together. Now you're gifting. Now, I probably don't have to say this, but let me make it clear. It's not merely parroting the sounds that come out Jesus, right? Like, that doesn't make somebody a Christian, because if so, almost every guy on my baseball team is a Christian. They will say Jesus Christ, and not in the most worshipful way sometimes. So it's not just merely saying the name, right? Obviously, confessing Jesus Christ in salvation. That is, you see your sin for what it is. You see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And you run to him. Forgive me, a sinner. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to follow you. But because we are so blinded in our sin, you can't do that on your own. You're dead, it says in Ephesians 2, in trespasses and sins. Ain't no way you can muster up the faith because you're born, let me put this graciously, turning your back on God. You can, you can, you can, you can put you know, perfume and religious ribbons on it, but it's still a pig with perfume and ribbons on it. We're, we're born dead in trespasses and sins. So, so what happened? What, let, let these words ring in your ears. And ring forth praise from your soul. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said this, but if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whom the small g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them, to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. But God didn't leave us there. Because verse 6 says, But God who said, Let light, which is what he did on the first day of creation, shine out of darkness. He shone in our hearts to show us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the same God, first day of creation, who spoke infinite megawatts of light into nothingness, and darkness is the same God who speaks the light of the gospel into the darkness of our heart. The greatest spiritual gift you could ever receive is the ability to confess, in reality, Jesus is Lord. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Because when that starts to happen, Jesus begins to have weight in your soul, right? It begins to have weight in your life. Now, listen, sanctification is progressive, right? And if we take close-in snapshots, sometimes it looks like we're going downhill, as a matter of fact, right? But the big picture is like this. He's moving you into greater conformity to Christ. One of the signs that you really have confessed Jesus as Lord by the gift of the Spirit, is you ain't looking for just fire insurance. You do want him to be Lord. That's the word that's emphasized here, Lord. They were saying Caesar is Lord, and he said, no, Jesus is Lord. So we sing about it. Man, that was so awesome. That's, let, let's sing it again when we close. I was blinded by my sin. Had no, had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me. 
And that's why, we, that's why we're going to come together and pray. One of the reasons, the Spirit has to move because we're so dead in trespasses and sins. And Paul is saying to them, stop acting like a bunch of banny roosters, peacocking around with these gifts when the greatest gift of all was confessing Jesus. And that was purely by the grace of God through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Point number one. You guys with me? Number two. Having established this baseline, this foundation, that true spirituality is marked not by spiritual gifts, but by the gift of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord through the Holy Spirit, Paul is going to go on to say, yeah, yeah, God does give gifts. Let's be clear about that. Lots of gifts. I want to flesh that out in three ways under point two, but let me just, let me, let me hammer this a little bit. Just start with this baseline. God gives gifts. He's the giver of all gifts. Just, just a quick passing of this text will show us that. Verse 4, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Verse 6, varieties of activities, but it is the same God. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 8, according to the same Spirit. Verse 9, by the one Spirit. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. <laughs> What's the big idea right there? God is the giver of all gifts. Now, if God is the one who gives gifts, how could you ever boast in your gift? Like, if God gave you that gift, and you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, he just gave it to you because he's a gracious God, he does, he's a charismatic God, then how could, you under, how could you begin to boast in your gift? You're basically revealing you don't understand it's a gift. Imagine some kid who's going to inherit $5 million. And he inherits the $5 million, and he goes around bragging about how great he is because he inherited $5 million, this rich kid. Now, listen, ain't nothing wrong with a kid inheriting $5 million. I think I got 8 to $10 million for my kids each. Uh, we'll have to see how the numbers play out. But it's sadly improper, whatever you inherit, to boast in that. It was an inheritance by grace because you're in the family line, and we're in the family line of God by grace. So, let me, let, me, let, me, yeah, let me dial in here. We all play it cool enough not to say outright, my gifts make me somebody special, but I wonder if that mentality can subtly infect us sometimes. Take teaching and preaching. Let's start right here. Of course, there's other venues for this. Teaching the kids, teaching adult Sunday school class, all of that. Time comes in a service when it gets real quiet and all eyes are up here. And that can feed a preacher's narcissistic, self-centered bent. That's, that's why I detest celebrity Christianity. I had a friend tell me the church he was at before the service, the, you know, the big band, all the bells and whistles, and the pastor would come out from the green room and he would kind of rub his hands together and say, showtime. And that mentality can subtly affect it. This is my time now to do my thing. Now, I'm glad that uh, if you'd asked me when I was nine years old whether I'd want to public speak, I would have said, no way. I was the kid in seventh grade uh, when you had to give like a four-minute speech and you had 17 jumbled up four-by-six index cards. We'd just run through it, sweating bullets. That, I, I, I mean, it was, it was painful for me. It was probably painful to watch. So I never aspired to speak publicly. But I know this. I know that mentality can subtly infect anybody. It can come, there can be a dark underbelly to seemingly innocent questions, even questions you might ask yourself after you preach. How did I do? It could be, were people impressed? Did they like me? You know? And you just took that gift and you turned it inward. And it's utterly demonic. Take the gift, gift of hospitality. It's a gift. Somebody's really great at opening up their house, opening up their lives, um, but they start to think, why can't other people do that like me? They must not love people like me. They must not love the city, love the neighborhood, whatever, like I do. And they took that gift and they turned it inward. Utterly demonic. Take the gift of prayer. Such a person can start to think, 
Why don't other people have a burden to pray like me? Don't they know that God won't move unless we pray? And it turned inward, utterly demonic. That's what they were doing with the gift of tongues. Again, what do you have that you did not receive, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And why then, if you received it out of grace, do you act like you didn't receive it, but obtained it? Now, let, let, let's flesh this out just a little bit. God gives a variety of gifts, a beautiful variety of gifts. I want, I want us to put our eyeballs once again on verse 4. Because each member of the Godhead is behind the giving of these gifts to the body. There's Trinitarian diversity in the giving of these gifts. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the what? Same Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. That would refer to time and time again the predominant name way Jesus Christ is referred to in Greek in the New Testament as Lord. Second person of the Trinity. He goes on to say, verse 6, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same theos, or God who empowers them all in everyone. That is the predominant way God the Father is referred to in the New Testament. Here's Paul's point. We ought to appreciate diversity in gifts because there's diversity in the source of the gifts, the diversity of our Trinitarian God. Diverse gifts, diverse Godhead. So how could you be so carnal to rank, to rank, rank and rate gifts when God gives a diversity of gifts, he is Trinitarianly, if I can put it that way, diverse. He gives us a multitude of gifts. Let me ask you this. Do you rate gifts? And people can do this from a place of superiority. Like, I can do this gift, I can do this gift. You know, it may not be tongues, but it could be something that a church culture prizes, right? And they elevate that. Or do you rank them from an inferiority complex? Like, oh, shucks, I, I, I can't do much. I'm not gifted. No, wait till we get to the body part. So we got to make sure we don't rate and rank gifts because God gives a diversity of gifts. Speaking of varieties of gifts, he goes on to list some here. And I just want to hit these quickly. It's not an all-inclusive list. You could go to Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and then back to Ephesians 4. And I don't think God even gives us all the gifts that he gives the body. I don't think he spells them all out necessarily in Scripture. People wrestle with tons of ways of how do you then group all these gifts together because there's so many, it's kind of hard to get your hands around. And I found Tim Keller to be extremely helpful in dividing these into prophetic gifts, priestly gifts, and kingly gifts. Prophetic gifts are gifts, are abilities based on understanding and articulating truth. Those are prophetic gifts. You could go to Ephesians 4 again for preaching and teaching and evangelism, but I, I just want to look at the gifts here that would be grouped under that heading. The utterance of wisdom, verse 8, and the utterance of knowledge. You wonder what that is? Well, commentators back to the church fathers strain to distinguish between utterance of knowledge and utterance of wisdom. So I'm going to do like most commentators do and group them together. Some people would say that the utterance, the gift of the utterance of knowledge and utterance of wisdom is God letting you know something, letting you know something that you couldn't have known otherwise, right? Like just supernatural knowledge. Maybe, but, but, but actually probably not that. Well, for one, that's the only time those expressions appear the logos of Sophia, or the word or utterance of wisdom, the logos of gnosis, the word or, um, of, or, 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 or speech of, of, of knowledge, only time those expressions appear. And what's more, that kind of thing would probably fall under the heading of prophetic gifts, which we will talk about a little bit later and definitely in a few weeks. I would agree with the large part of commentators who would say it's simply, but, but vitally, but significantly, but importantly, but profoundly means this. It is the gift, the ability to speak wisely into a situation, applying God's truth with great clarity and precision. Because you and I understand there's not a verse 
chapter and book for every issue you're going to face, right? We, we, have, we have principles. We study the Word, and we do the best we can, right, to apply the principles of God's Word to things that the Word wouldn't address specifically. How about Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, it was said. There's two women. They both have babies. Remember that story? What happens to one of the babies? Baby dies. So it's alleged that one woman steals the other baby. So now there's this argument, who does this the remaining surviving baby belong to, mom A or mom, mom B? So they, they go before Solomon, they plead their case, and Solomon says, how about this? Go grab a sword, and we'll cut the baby in half, and you can get one half, and you can get one half. And one of the ladies recoils in horror, like, no, no, she, she can have the baby. And Solomon says, you're the mom, because no mom would ever want their child cut in two. That was an utterance of wisdom, an utterance of knowledge. And I would say specifically, it's the ability to apply the gospel to everyday situations. Some people are really gifted on that. And after all, is not Jesus called the wisdom of God in the earlier chapters of this book? So that's the utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge. Now, how about verse 10? The ability to distinguish between spirits. In the Greek, Spirits, I believe, is neuter, uh, plural. So people say, is that referring to um, evil spirits or is that merely referring to human spirits? We're, we're not sure. But either way, it's the person who has the ability to parse out when somebody is speaking and saying something, whether that's rooted in the Holy Spirit or demonic spirits, the Holy Spirit is simply just fallen human spirits. And is that not a needed gift? In a time when so many people claim to say, well, if you care about God, you'll care about X, Y, and Z. If you love God, you'll do this. If you love God, you won't do that. And people hijack that, and they add God to it. They add a few biblical expressions on it, never mind what the rest of the Scripture might say. And the person who's gifted with the ability to discern between spirits says, that may sound good on the front end, but I don't think that's sourcing the truth of God. Now, you can see both of these three or two gifts, however you break them down, they're rooted in what? Scripture. So if you would want these gifts, do two things. Number one, pray that the Spirit would drop these gifts on you because there is a Spirit-empowered ability with those. But also, meanwhile, saturate yourself with Scripture. Now we wade into prophecy, which we will get to in more detail later. But verse 10, he says, to another prophecy. Candidly, this one is a tangled mess in contemporary Christianity more than tongues. Because people tend to have a very minimalistic idea of what this prophecy is. It's merely telling, it's, it, it's only exclusively telling something with detail in the future before it happens, right? And, and this can come in all kinds of ways. It can, dreams. You know, some to have a dream and they'll say, I saw you flying high in the sky on the top of a big navel orange. And there were three moons above you. And you were flying across four golden streets. You know what that means? In three months, you're going to be offered a sweet job down in South Florida that's going to pay you four times what you're making. You're like, whoa, man, God spoke to me. Now, <laughs> I'm being a little facetious here. Yes, there is sometimes an element of telling the future in prophecy. Okay? But even with legit Old Testament prophets, they usually did not tell somebody something new. They rather reminded them of what God was calling them to, to obedience, to repentance, to trust, to faith, and all that. And what is even more any future telling today is different than future telling in the pages of Scripture. We have what's called a closed canon. The faith once delivered to the saints. It's not like you're ever going to hear somebody give a prophecy and you're like, that is so good. we got to write a 67 book of the Bible with that stuff. No. No, that's not, that's not how it's going to be. Today, prophecy is subject to error. So yes, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophesying. Don't despise it. 
but test everything. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 14, they are to be weighed out. How do you do that? We'll walk through that. So if anyone ever says, the Lord says, or thus saith the Lord, ask them, ask them one thing and then do another thing. Ask them if they're willing to be stoned to death. Because according to the Old Testament, if you prophesy something specifically in the name of the Lord and it does not come to pass, but send out the funeral invitations. And then I would do this. I would run. Now, does the Lord lay something on people's heart that might be for somebody else? Yes, people have shared stuff with me. Some of it's been helpful. But it always ought to be expressed with a great deal of humility and even a level of, of uncertainty. Um, certainly not dogmatically, the Lord said, right? Maybe it could be couched this way. Perhaps the Lord or there's something that's on my heart. I'm not sure if it's of the Lord or not, but here, does this mean anything to you? That's the spirit in which it needs to be shared. I want to be clear. God does lay prophecies of the future sort uh, of, the, of that nature um, on people's hearts, okay? Do you hear me? But that's actually a very small slice of the prophetic pie and so easily abused, and people are so easily hurt by that stuff. Mostly, if we're just going to keep this as rigorously biblical as we can, mostly, mostly the gift of prophesying according to 1 Corinthians 14, again, we'll get there, results in building up edification, encouragement, and consoling, and verses 25 and 26, I think it is, or verses 24 and 25, speech that has weight and power in the heart of lost people bringing them to Christ. That's what the scripture gives us. So this should happen in preaching, of course, but prophesying is much bigger than preaching. That's why all of us here are to desire the gift of prophesying as it is laid out in scripture. Now, I got to run, 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 run. Let's hit with various kinds of tongues and interpretation of tongues, verse 10. We'll come back to that again, chapter 14. But the gift they had, it's what's interesting here, is the gift they had at the top of their list, right? It was the badge of spirituality, speaking in tongues. Paul actually has it at the bottom of the list here. Now, don't mistake me. He thinks tongues are a good thing. He's not dissing on tongues. He's dissing on the elevating of tongues they had done there as a badge of spirituality. It's the ability to speak in languages that you've not had training in, and the ability then even to interpret them in a language you've not had training. Now, there's a few other things that, 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 that tongues cover, and we'll hit that in a few weeks. Let me, yeah, we'll hit that in a few weeks. I got to run, I got to run, I got to run, I got to run. Okay, let's just hit priestly gifts real quick. Their abilities based on understanding and supplying basic needs, gifts of serving, gifts of giving generously and mercy, Romans 12 stuff. Those are some of the gifts in Romans 12. But here it includes, this is really cool, I love this, verse 9, the gifts of healing. And what's interesting is both gift and healing are plural. In other words, gifts of the healings, which gives us the idea what's in mind is not just one specific kind of healing, but certainly physical healing, um, emotional healing, mental healing, spiritual healing. Some, 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 some counselors are really gifted in one of those lanes of bringing healing to people. That is a gift for today, the gifts of healings. That's why you shouldn't isolate yourselves. Then you have this, the working of miracles, verse 10. This is powerful as well, to another working of miracles. Literally, the words are energeo dunamis, energizing and then a word, power, that years later, dynamite, but dynamite wasn't around when it was dunamis. <laughs> but his idea of workings of power. Those are the kind of people you want praying for you, don't you, by the way? People who just, in God's sovereign grace, seem to be connected with God intervening in undeniably supernatural ways. The workings of power. Those are priestly gifts. Then you have kingly gifts. Those are abilities based on understanding direction and group needs. So you have the gift of leadership, Romans 12. The gift of administration, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. The gift of church planning and multiplication, Ephesians 4, 11. On and on. There's one of those gifts up here in 1 Corinthians 12. It's the gift of faith. To another, faith. 
verse 9. Faith by the same Spirit. Now listen, he's not here talking about saving faith, which is a gift that all Christians enjoy. Really what he's talking about here is the ability for someone to believe God in a very difficult situation and actually see that goal come to to fruition. You ever heard of uh, Hudson Taylor? Launched the mission to the China Inland Mission. There's a uh, two-volume autobiography about him. It's really, really faith-inspiring stuff. He had that gift. In the fledgling early years of the China Inland Mission, they're suffering. They don't have many resources. He believed God against all, (laughs) all odds, first of all, to make it into the inland of China, which was no small thing given cultural barriers, and to have the resources to do so. And it is incredibly cool to see how God saw that faith goal through. B, God gives gifts sovereignly. I'm just going to run right here. Verse 11. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as He wills. Now, God sovereignly gives gifts. This doesn't mean that you sit on your hands and say, well, I'm going to get on and get them, so whatever. Again, people abuse that across the board, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is not to lead to fatalism, but to actually expectant faith. So to say that he gives gifts sovereignly doesn't mean, well, I guess I shouldn't go for other gifts, because in the Scripture itself, we're told to pursue gifts. But the point I'm trying to make is at the end of the day, he does distribute them sovereignly. So how can you be boastful or judgmental about what God sovereignly gave you or didn't give you or gave her or didn't give her? It makes no sense. He sovereignly gives gifts. And then finally, God gives gifts for the good of the body. This is going to take us right into next week, the illustration. Verse 7, if you're doing memory work through passages that we're working through, I would memorize verse 7. To each. To who? What's each mean? I think that includes everyone, right? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for their own good? For the common good. We get gifts for the good of others. And God, the people of God are yearning for you to use your gift in this body. If you call this church home, the people of God are yearning for you to plug in your gifts here. We get gifts for the good of others. My gift and gifts, whatever they might be, are not for the good of me, but for the good of you all. And your gift isn't for the good of you, but for the good of us all. We get gifts for the good of others. How are you using your gifts for the good of others? How are you doing? Again, we have a prayer influence leader, evangelism influence leader. We just try to put them in their lanes, let them run. They're gifted in those areas, but we don't get a pass because I'm not gifted in evangelism or I'm not gifted in prayer because these are basic Christian responsibilities and they're here to help strengthen us in walking out those responsibilities. Are you in the game or are you on the sideline? Or worse yet, are you up in the stands? That's a fair question, right? All of us, not a person here, should not be anything but in the game. And God's call to you would be to step up, strap up, and get in the game. And in the end, our boasting is not about our gifts. It's about in the one our gifts were given to exalt. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, may it never be said that I boast in anything except Christ and Him crucified. If the music team would come, I feel like there might be three decision points that people could be at. And when the Word of God is proclaimed, we are called to decide what we want to do. Right? Like, you need, it might have been lecture-like at some point. We're just kind of imparting information. No. God's design is not for the imparting of information, but for the imparting of transformation. So he brings people to decision points. He does it all through Scripture. You know, he said, to, you know, Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve, right? 
We're called to make decisions. Don't, don't, don't wiggle right here. Hang with me. Decision one. Do you feel yourself wanting, you wouldn't even know how to describe this, but to call upon Jesus Christ right now to save you? Because I'm not naive enough to think everybody here is a Christian. Not naive enough to think that. And some people believe a lie because people have thought I'm a Christian. And now I say, I have to admit I'm not. Then I'm going to look really stupid, which is hiss from the pit. Because if you have presented yourself as a Christian and you're not, and you confess that, ain't nobody going to judge you. We would rejoice with you, right? There's people here who have been like that, for crying out loud. But wherever, you, wherever you're coming from, if you feel compelled to confess Jesus Christ as Lord in a real saving way, that's only because of the goodness of the Holy Spirit working in your heart. He did that for every one of us. We didn't know it. We just knew we were lost and we needed a Savior. And we called upon Him. But now we can look back through Scripture and say, whoa, that was the Spirit who spoke light into darkness, speaking light into my darkness. Is He speaking light into your darkness? And if He is, I would just say, let the light flood your soul and come to Him right now. Oh, great God, can we sing that? Yeah. Because yeah. that's, that, that's, that's basically a narrative of our salvation. Second thing is this. If you've been boastful or judgmental about gifts, maybe it's time to repent, right? Get that stuff out of the way. The blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you, right? That'll actually keep you from really serving the way you should in the 1 Corinthians 13 out of love kind of way, right? So service is sometimes stellar in execution, powerless in results because there's not love. It's got to be love. So if there's been any boastfulness there, let's just, just own it, just confess it. I can tell you as someone who's serving regularly, you, you're constantly having to go to your knees and say, oh Lord, I am, I am such an idolater. I'm such an idolater. So you do it. There's other people with you. And then, and then finally, have you been on the sideline with your gifts? Been the sideline. You know, the, the church just yearns for you to be faithful in coming out here, honest with you. Being part of the body. And we're going to dial in on that crazy illustration next week. The body. Do you want us to look like an amputated body? Or one that has no intestine or no brain or no feet or anything? No. If you are on the sideline, make that decision today. To say, I am going to step up, strap up, and get in the game. The, the, the bride yearns for you to be part of it in a functional, everyday way. I hope this hasn't been too much. There's so much that I'm leaving here. But Father, thank you so much for this truth. And I pray that as we rise to our feet, we would respond in any of these three decision points as necessary and others as well. Thank you, Spirit, that you are sovereign and you're working even now in places perhaps we can't even see. In Jesus' name.